title for us this morning is Standing on the Brink of the Future. Standing on the Brink of the Future. Let me begin by saying this. I love learning from the writings and the talks of the late Hall of Fame coach John Wooden. He's recently gone to be with the Lord, but John Wooden was a basketball coach for UCLA from 1948 to 1975. And during that time, <clears throat> excuse me, and during that time, he amassed 620 victories and 10 NCAA championships, seven of which were consecutive. He's known for coaching players like Charles Bridges, who would later become an actor, Bill Walton, and Lou Alcindor, who changed his name later to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Alcindor was the reason why the NCAA, for a period of time, outlawed dunking in college basketball. I think one reason that Wooden was so successful as a coach was because he refused to leave behind rudiments. He believed in the basics. He loved fundamentals. For example, each and every year, whether you were a first-year freshman or a fourth-year senior, every single practice began with an instruction on how to tie your shoes. Let me read something from Collins' book, Great by Choice. The coach comes out and opens the first moments of practice in a quiet voice. We will begin by learning how to tie our shoes. You look over to a couple of famous seniors, all Americans, who've already won national championships, thinking this must be some kind of freshman initiation, but no, the seniors calmly begin taking off their shoes and preparing for the shoe tying lesson. First, coach says, put your socks on, slowly, with care, over your toes, the seniors diligently follow instructions. Now, move your socks up here and here. Smooth out the wrinkles, nice and tight. Take your time. The coach intones his lesson like some sort of far-out Zen master teaching you how to make tea as some path of higher enlightenment. Then lace your shoes from the bottom carefully, slowly getting each Pass nice and tight. Snug, 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 he says. After the lesson, you ask one of the All-American seniors what that was all about. And he says, get a blister in a big game and you're going to suffer. Shoes come untied in a close game. Well, that just never happens here. One year later, you come to practice, having helped create yet another national championship team, noting the surprised looks on the freshman faces when the coach says, we will begin by learning how to tie our shoes. Church is true in basketball, and surprising though it may be, it is true in the Christian faith too. When we are standing on the brink of future, as those players were standing on the brink of a new season, we need reminding. 
we tend to forget. We become flat, disheartened and dull of hearing, distracted by the cares and concerns of this world. And because of that, church, we forget the simple, small things that are done well. They inevitably lead to excellence and success. Let me say that again. The small, simple things done well inevitably lead to success. We all want spiritual, mental, and financial success. I don't know anyone who would say, no, I don't want any of those things. But we want instant spiritual strength. We want instant mental strength. Stamina. We want instant financial abundance, but 99% of the time, it just doesn't happen that way. So periodically, we are given these reminders of the fundamentals of the faith, how to tie our shoes, if you will. And in Deuteronomy chapter 29 this morning, I see three things that God doesn't want us to forget. Let me share with you these three things. Number one, don't forget where you've been. And number two, don't forget where you are. And number three, perhaps most importantly of all, don't forget where you're going. Don't forget where you've been. Don't forget where you are. And finally, don't forget where you're going. So if you're ready, say amen. Amen. Our first point this morning is don't forget where you've been. This is found in verses 1 through 9. If you'll just read it with your eyes once again, the scriptures say this, these are the words of the covenant of the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel. Get this, in the land of Moab, beside the covenant that he had already made with them in Horeb. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, you have seen, past tense, you've seen this. You've seen all that the Lord did before the eyes before your eyes, excuse me, in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials that you saw, the signs and the great wonders. Get the picture. The people of God are about to cross the River Jordan. They're in Moab, which is the land to the east of the River Jordan. They're about to cross over and inherit the land that was promised to them in Genesis chapter 2 to their forefather Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then, of course, reestablished in Exodus chapter 24 where the covenant was confirmed by God and with the people. Now, this is an additional covenant. Moses says here, besides the covenant of Sinai or Horeb. That's a synonymous term. And so they, they are making an additional agreement here. And essentially, this additional agreement is going to come to us by way of reminders. And essentially, it's don't forget what I did. Don't forget where you've been. There are typically two errors when it comes to the philosophy of history. Either we romanticize where we've been and make it out to be the only place that we would ever want to be. And certainly the Israelites did this when they left Egypt and started to talk about, oh, we had wonderful gardens in Egypt. We had such a wonderful time in Egypt. And here we are in Sinai. We've come out here just to die. That would be one mistake. The other mistake would be to be ignorant and unappreciative of the past and the effects that it's had on our lives. That, too, is a mistake. Church, we need a middle ground here. We need to find this place 
that's in the middle. It would be foolish to act as if we don't have a past, like we've never been lost, like God hasn't delivered us from some trial or tribulation, saved us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. But it would simultaneously be foolish to talk about the past as if it were perfect, as if we would live in reverse if we could. I'm reminded of what Soren Kierkegaard said, life is best understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. We should remember what God has done. This is not only in regards to what he's done in the Bible, yes and amen, but we should also remember, get this, we should also remember what he's done in our lives, what we've personally experienced in regards to the work of God. In this case, the Bible says that he's protected the people of Israel, he's clothed them, their clothes didn't wear out. He's fed them, he gave them food from heaven, and he led them victoriously in battle. Friends, what has our great God done for you? It's one thing to read the words of Scripture and say, I realize that God did this for the people of Israel but that's not what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you to regurgitate a story that any child going through a wana could regurgitate to me. I want you to think about what he has done for you. I don't want to know if you could fill in a blank or give me data. I'm not asking about knowledge. I want to know if you have understanding. I want to know if you are appreciative of the work of God in your life in the past. Do you even know what he's done? Have you thought about the things that he's done for you, for your loved ones? What has he done to people through you, using you, or have you forgotten? I know some of you have a Ph.D. and complaining and grumbling and whining. You excel in this department straight A's. You could find an offense in a sunny day. Someone asked you how you're doing and they would be led to believe that you had some sort of flesh-eating bacteria. And the reality of the matter is Say amen if you're listening. I'm going to step on your feet here. The reason you complain is because you have forgotten. You have forgotten who God is. And you have forgotten what God has done. People who are mindful of what God has done don't complain all the time. There's no strength in complaining. That's a negative avenue for attention. But I don't want attention because I complain a bunch. I want attention because I remind people what God has done as I am reminded of what God has done. I love what this psalm says. Psalm 126, verse 3. Psalm 126, verse 3 says, The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The Lord's done great things for us, and we are glad. I want to ask you a question. 
Do you know, first of all, that the Lord has done great things for you? And number two, are you glad? You see, those two things can't be dislocated. They go together. If you know what God has done for you, you will be glad. And if you're not glad, it's because you don't know. This is not complicated. This is one of the basic rudiments of our faith. Either you is or you ain't. You know because you know. But if you don't know, it's because you haven't considered. And if you're not considering, you are failing to do your due diligence as a child of the Most High God. Do not forget what he has done for you. Do not forget that you were in Egypt. Do not forget that you crossed the desert, whatever Egypt and the desert might be. For each and every one of us is something different. But this point is unavoidable. You cannot be glad if you do not know. The greatness of our God is sometimes found in the scriptural stories for us. And other times, the greatness of our God is found in the stories of his work in our lives. That's what we call testimony. I'm not asking you if you have knowledge. You should have knowledge. I'm asking you if you have understanding. The first nine verses of this chapter remind us that we should not forget where we've been. Amen? Secondly, I want you to think about this fact. We should not forget where we are. Don't forget where you are. This is our second point. It's following the first, obviously, in succession. And I want to share this with you. Verse 10 says, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourners who are in your camp, converts, from the one who gathers your wood to the one who draws the water. When we appreciate where we are in God's plan, where we are in God's providence, where we are in view of the past that he has delivered us from, there are a couple of things worth remembering. Write these down. First, remember that God's grace creates equality. Remember that God's grace creates equality. Everyone is there by virtue of God's grace. That's what this is saying. You are standing today, how many of you? All of you. And he goes on and he gives a description. The heads of the tribes, the elders, the officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, even the ones that are converts and come into our community. This is called the sojourners. And then he says, the one who chops the wood and the one who draws the water. Absolutely everyone, all of you, are here standing before the Lord today. And what this means, friends, is that we must remember God's grace creates 
equality. Everyone is there in the community by virtue of God's grace. They didn't deliver themselves from Egypt. They didn't carry themselves through the wilderness. They aren't earning a right standing with God right now. Otherwise, the sacrificial system would be superfluous and redundant. From the heads of the tribes to the ones that gather the wood and bring buckets of water from the river. From the top to the bottom, from the left to the right, everyone who stands before the Lord, say amen if you're listening, they stand not on their merit, not on their works, but by the grace of God. All of them. Let's not forget this. Social standing does not determine how gracious God has been to someone. God is graciously disposing the world in a way that he deems fit in his sovereign pleasure and will. That means some of us will be high and some of us will be low. But it's all by God's grace. In his plan, God has made a variety of people for a variety of purposes. And we are all covered by his grace. I love what Proverbs 22, verse 2 says. The rich and poor meet together because the Lord is the maker of them all. Oh, we don't think that. We diagnose, don't we? Look at that poor bugger. God didn't make him. No, God made him too. And whatever's going on in his relationship with God, whether it's outright disobedience or rebellion or atheism or whatever the case might be, every single human being is made in the image and likeness of God. And to some degree, there is grace there, whether it's common grace that we all, without distinction, experience, or saving grace, which is only experienced by those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Whether it be common grace or saving grace, we all experience the grace of God. And it's an equalizer, friends. We need to remember that the grace of God is an equalizer. When you assess where you are in your life, don't forget the people that God has placed around you. When you assess your life, don't forget the people that God has placed around you. We're talking about presently where you are, but you don't get to where you are without your past. And your past is littered with people that God has used to influence you. When I was a young man and I became a Christian... At 19 years old, not very long after that, a man in the church that I started attending came to me and said, you should come to our men's group every Saturday at 6 a.m. And my parents were divorced. My dad had not been at home for years. And, and so for me, uh, okay, I'll go. But I did not realize or appreciate the dearth of masculine affection that was in my life. And I'll never forget the first morning that I went, and I was a new Christian. Like all new Christians, I was at Bible study nine times a week. How many Bible studies can I fit in a week, right? 
So I walk into this room, and the man's name was Calvin Hill. I'll never forget, recovering cocaine addict and everything else. I walked in, and he was about 6'8", 260. And he said, what's up, little brother? And he put his arms around me, and it was amazing because I realized in that moment that a man had not hugged me in years. God puts people in your path to influence you. Years and years later, my dad was being honored as a Hall of Fame coach in Dade County, and we were at his award banquet, and we were sitting there, and people were also, other people were receiving awards as well, and one man received an award. Everyone clapped. I wasn't sure who he was. He was some sort of teacher, and they were acknowledging him, and he stood up, and after all the clapping was done, and it quieted down hundreds of people in the banquet hall, after all the clapping quieted down, he said, I'm here today because somebody prayed for me. I wonder if you realize you are where you are because of God's grace. Because God put someone in your life at some point, at some pivotal moment, or some challenging season. Or is it all about you? It's not all about you, is it? I hope you realize it's not all about you. You would not be who you are, where you are, without the points of influence that God put in your life along the way. Not only have you influenced people, but you've been influenced by people. There's an equality there in God's grace. Second, I want you to note this. God's grace leaves no room for pride. This is found in verses 18 and 19. God's grace leaves no room for pride. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart. And he says, I'll be safe, even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. That's God's way of saying, I will judge as broadly as I need to. It won't happen to me. It'll happen to him, but it won't happen to me, right? I know I'm doing the same thing that she did, and it didn't work out good for her, but it's going to be different for me. We do this in our relationships. I don't know why. Christian people get involved with non-Christian people, and they go, but he's different. But she's different. Well, they're always different when you're infatuated. There comes a time when we have to assess the situation that we are engaging in, not by our view, but by the view that God has. We have to be careful that we don't make decisions in pride, in stubbornness. It won't happen to me. It's going to be fine. 
Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Or how about this one, 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore, if any man thinks he stands, let him take heed, lest he fall. When we start to live with an arrogance and a pride about us, we can be sure that trouble is around the corner. When we assess our current situation, when we place the value of things in the balance, we must always be aware of this truth. Say amen if you're listening. Everything we have is by God's grace. It's not our merit. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. You know what we deserve? Judgment! Judgment! That's what we deserve! I know we get the gospel upside down sometimes because we're always reminded constantly that God loves us so much, he sent his son. God loves us so much, he sent his son. God, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. This is not untrue. But understand that you don't live in some neutral ground until you become a Christian. You are judged by God and the wrath of God is on you until you become a Christian. It's not like you're like, okay, and then saved. You're going to hell. And then you're saved. <laughs> There are, no, there are no secondary options here. You are either with Christ or you are not with Christ. And when we assess our situation, we always must assess it, not in our pride, but in the glory of God and the grace that he provides. I love what Psalm 145, verse 8 says. Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Somebody says, what is God like? Well, Psalm 145 verse 8 says, he's gracious and merciful. That's a fact. It's a statement. This is not something that says, in my opinion, I think God is gracious and merciful, or on occasion, God might be gracious. No, this is part of his character. It's part of his being. This is who he is. When God behaves toward the world and his people, he does it in a gracious and merciful way. I love what Paul says. This is a personal testimony here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I am the least of the apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. When Paul assessed himself in view of all the other apostles, he looked at the other apostles and as a, as a person who was a non-Christian and persecuted the church, caused harm to the church, he was saying, I don't deserve to be an apostle. When I look at the other apostles, I'm the least of all these guys. Although I think most people look at Paul and they go, you're a rock star. You're the apostle. But Paul's opinion of himself was not that. Nevertheless, when Paul assessed the situation and said, of all the apostles, I'm the least. I'm the least of all the apostles. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Here's my question for you, church. Regardless of the past or where you are, can you say with confidence, by the grace of God, I am what I am? If you can say with confidence, by the grace of God, I am what I am, well, you're in a pretty good position. 
If you are saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am, but I, I, need, to, I need to get with God on a few things. I need to tune up some things. That's normal. If you say, only God can judge me, that's, that's not a biblical attitude, by the way. That's, that's always the attitude coming out of someone who is doing something that is blatantly against Scripture. You tell them, hey, you know this is not God's will for your life, and they go, only God can judge you. Well, listen, God will judge you. That much is certain. All I'm telling you is, as the word reveals truth, you are living in error. And you can do whatever you want with that. Only God can judge you. This is true. He will judge you. But if you don't want to be judged by God, this is the way. It's by his grace, as it's found in Jesus Christ. Can we say, not with pride, not with arrogance, not with stubbornness, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he's working on me, and I'm working with him. But I am not where I was 10 years ago today. These people are on the brink of crossing into the promised land. They are not in Egypt anymore. They are not in the wilderness anymore. And my, my question for you before we get into our final point, not to forget where we're going, when view of the past and where we are, my question for you is if you are in fact standing in the grace of God, then you shouldn't be in Egypt still. You shouldn't be wandering around in the wilderness still. If you are in the grace of God, you should be somewhere today that you weren't 10 years ago, five years ago. And if you're living dedicated to his grace, then you shouldn't be where you were five months ago either. Was, oh, I'm having a slow season. Work it out. Work it out. We must be confident in who we are by the grace of God and aware of the fact that though we may not be perfect, amen, we are not today where we were yesterday. And if you cannot relate to that, get to work. Get to work. His grace was not given so you could lie down and play dead. His grace was given so that you would work freely not, know, not worrying about satisfying a bill that Jesus has already paid for you. Finally, don't forget where you're going. Don't forget where you've been. Don't forget where you are. Thirdly and finally, don't forget where you're going. For this, I'd like you to look at the final verse in Deuteronomy 29. That's verse 29. And it reads like this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. How long? Forever. I'm mindful of what Jesus says in Matthew 23, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. They belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. As you might suspect, our final point is don't forget where you're going, since we've already talked about where you've been and where you are. 
and part of the symmetry of my outline, because I do like a nice outline. But this is my last point also, because I think it leads to this idea, okay? Can you hear me? God holds our future. God holds your future. He's in control of all things, and he can dispose it at his pleasure. And when you consider where you've been and where you are, you should come to no other conclusion than this one. My God holds my future. He holds mine. He holds yours. And what he has entrusted to us and what he has entrusted to our children He has done so out of his wisdom because he doesn't reveal everything about the future to us. The scriptures say that the secret things belong to the Lord. Amen? Amen. God has not invited us to do his job. He hasn't put it out for a vote. There is no ballot. He does not care about public opinion. God will never cease to be God. And in so doing, in his wisdom, he has decided to reveal some things, which means we would not know them otherwise. If it isn't revealed, we cannot know. But even in the midst of his process of revelation of himself, as we have it in the Word, and we learn what we are like and what God is like and what his expectations are and the method of salvation for those of us, which is all of us who are sinners and need forgiveness, it's all revealed here. But not everything is revealed here. And so we have some things to consider. If we're going to do this properly, move from where we are and from where we are into where we were and where we are into the future that God has for us, then we must walk and live by faith because the secret things belong to him. We must live and walk by faith. Let me share with you a few things. First, Since we can't know all things, we must keep our faith in God. Since we can't know all things, we must keep our faith in God. Our God is the God who determines the end from the beginning, who sovereignly and providentially works out everything in the middle. As Paul says, he works all things for the good of those of his people, and who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. That does not mean everything. God God is being very specific about this idea. God works all things for the good of his people who are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean God is not working in the world, but God wants you to focus on this fact. Your future is his. And everything that happens to you is for your good. Say, it's for my good. We don't and we can't know everything. And I know this is, this is hard for some of you, especially if you are of the female persuasion. Hey, you want to fight? Listen, uh, some, some of us, we, we're great at making decisions. As long as we know every possible outcome, (laughs) it's part of our personalities. Some of us think this way, and if we don't know every potential outcome of a decision that we have, and our faith is not where it should be, this is what's called anxiety. 
If we have troubled minds and troubled hearts all the time, we need to check our faith in God. Because the scripture says God works all things. How many things? All things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. If you are a child of God, you need to know this. doesn't matter what's happening in your life. God is going to work it for your good. That's what the scripture says. So as we talk about this idea, first and foremost, first and foremost, we need to keep our faith in God. And why should we keep our faith in God? It's a great question. I'm going to share with you three reasons. Ready? Number one, we can put our faith in God because God is good. We can put our faith in God because God is good. Psalm 136 verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord because he is good. Give thanks to the Lord. We're not talking about gambling with our faith here. We're not talking about taking a chance of something that's uncertain. We are talking about placing our faith in God because he is good. He's not a person. He's not a good person. He's the good person. And if God is good, then we should put our faith in him. Secondly, we can put our faith in God because he is holy. We should put our faith in God because he is good. But secondly, we should put our faith in God because he is holy. And in case you're wondering if he would stab you in the back one day, if he would cheat you out of something one day, rest assured that God is holy and he does not do anything wrong. He is righteous and he is just. Leviticus 19.2 says, I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, he does everything right and he will not do you wrong. So why should we keep our faith in God? Number one, because he's good. Number two, because he's holy. And number three, we should put our faith in God because God is forgiving. God is forgiving. The second part of Micah 7, 18 says, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Of what Luke 15 says, Jesus is talking about the one sheep that goes astray. And when the shepherd reaches out to save the one sheep, he brings it back on his shoulders, and when they get back, they throw a party. And they celebrate because the one sheep that was lost was found. Jesus says that's, what's, that's exactly what happens in heaven when a lost person is found all of heaven rejoices. God delights in forgiving. Even me, even you. Even you. So we must keep our faith in God. Second, we must keep our faith in God because God's knowledge is perfect. We must keep our faith in God because God's knowledge is perfect. Now, God's knowledge has been implied throughout the book of Deuteronomy, but 
It doesn't explicitly discuss it here. I want to share with you a couple of verses that sort of demystifies the doubt that enters our mind when it comes to what God knows or doesn't know. Two verses in particular I want to share. The first is Psalm 147, verse 5. Psalm 147, verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Another verse is Isaiah 40, 28. Isaiah 40, 28 says that God's understanding is unsearchable. In theology, we call this omniscience. God is all-knowing. Now, I don't know better than God, and you don't know better than God. To have faith in God is to say with comfort, peace, and tranquility that God knows what's best for me because God's knowledge is perfect. If we doubt God, then something is deficient in our view of him. If we are having a trying circumstance or season in our life, when we assess it, is our answer to the assessment, God must not love me? If so, there's a deficiency in our view of God. God must not know all the circumstances. If that's our view, there's a deficiency in our view of God. However we work it out, the reality of the matter is scripturally this. God is omniscient. We cannot measure his wisdom. His, his understanding is unsearchable. And so we should put our faith in God for that reason. Your ability, listen to me here, your ability to understand what God has in store for you isn't a prerequisite for his will. Don't wrestle with God. You will not win. Trust God. Believe God. Because he is good, he is holy, and he is forgiving. And finally, the last idea that I want to share with you under the fact that God is leading us into the future he has for us is this. What God has imparted to us belongs to us and to the next generation. What God has given, while the secret things belong to him, he has given for us and for the next generation. Church, I can't tell you how important it is that you appreciate what this verse is teaching that you allow it to soak into your bones and your soul. We need to appreciate that what we learn and believe is what we pass down to our children and the next generation. This isn't what we think we should believe. This isn't what we think is the right way. We pass down, after we absorb it ourselves, what God says what God has revealed. We're talking about his word, his principles, his statutes, his judgments, 
We do everything with his word, by his word. And when questions are asked, answers are provided, not by our opinions, but by his word. Someone once wrote, let this then be our sacred rule to seek and to know nothing except what scripture teaches us. When the Lord chooses to close his holy mouth, let us also stop in the way so that we may not go any farther. Listen, when God's word stops, we go, I don't know. And it says, well, I'm, I'm terribly interested in becoming a Christian, but I've got to know. How many angels can fit through a door simultaneously? Well, that's a really stupid question, and the Bible doesn't talk about that. That's, that's just one of those things that's not wildly important. I don't know. But what the Bible does say is if you believe in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. You see, what is revealed is revealed for us. And the other stuff, we've got to trust God, which we can do because he's good and holy and forgiving. I want you to note here that the commandments of God that have been delivered to us aren't only ours. They are for our children. We're not to be selfish with, with them and stingy with them. No, we are to study them, meditate upon them, understand them, and pass them down to our family and our friends, especially our children. And if we don't impart to the next generation what God has passed down to us, we cannot claim Proverbs 22.6, teach a child in the way that they should go, and in the end they will not depart from it. No, that's not how... That's, that's not... That's not a, a, an incantation. We can't just say that after we have failed as parents. That principle is general, generally applicable to people who raise their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But we can't just use that verse whenever we want. The implication here in Deuteronomy 29, 29 is that we are passing down to our kids what we ourselves believe and practice. Do these things, it says. And when we do, the future can be anticipated with joy. And the future can be anticipated with victory. Because God is good and his wisdom is perfect. To close, let me say this. You don't have to be the head basketball coach for UCLA to appreciate the fundamentals, the rudiments, the small things that lead to big success. This morning, I've shared with you three things that should lead you to success in your life from Deuteronomy 29. Those things are this. Don't forget where you've been. Don't forget where you are. And don't forget where you're going. God has perfect control of your future. Trust him. Obey him. And great things will be in store for you. <laughs> 